definitely fixed it again. With Naomi Asabri Frimpong, Claire Bretherton, Josh Hayes, Fiona Healy, Monique Kenson, Tom Hillier, Matt Melenta, Ian Morrison, Jake Morgan, Tom Sprague, and Benjamin Chalmers. The Jodcast, July 2017 edition. Hello, and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Fiona, and here joining me in the studio today are Jake and Josh. Say hi, guys. Hello. So, a kind of introduction here is necessary. Uh, even though you've heard from Josh before, this is his first time wearing a presenter's hat as opposed to the interviewee's hat. So, uh, Josh, do you want to introduce yourself? Hello, uh, I'm Josh Hayes. I'm a PhD student at the University of Manchester researching uh, exoplanets' atmospheres. I was uh, lucky enough to be interviewed on my work uh, regarding FRBs on our last edition, and I'm now here on the other side of the microphone. Um, not interviewing anyone, so that doesn't work. That, that's that's a terrible analogy. Um, yeah, but hello. <laughs> Hi, Josh. Welcome to the Jodcast. Uh, thank you for fixing the SD cards. Yes, that was entertaining. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> um, cool. And you already know Jake and and myself, of course. So we don't need to introduce ourselves again. In the show this time, Monique Henson and Tom Scrag interviewed Dr. Adam Amara about a holistic approach to cosmology. And Ian Morrison and Claire Brotherton take a look at what's happening in the night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Matt Malenta with this month's news. This month in the news. SpaceX did it again in June and exceeded everyone's expectations. Two successful launches followed by two successful landings on two different drone ships in three days means that SpaceX's owner and its employees have a reason to celebrate. After the difficult two previous years, the company is now on track to meet and even exceed its goals for the number of successful launches this year, with three launches of the Falcon 9 rocket that took place over the course of a little bit more than three weeks. On the 23rd of June, Bulgaria Sat-1, a geostationary telecommunications satellite, was launched from the Kennedy Space Center Pad 39A. It was the second time a reused booster was flown to space, and successfully brought back to Earth. B-1029 was first flown in the middle of January, marking a much shorter refurbishment process as compared to a nearly year that passed between two launches of the first booster that was reused. Second launch in the three-day period took place from the West Coast Vandenberg Air Force Base Space Launch Complex 4 on the 25th of June. The mission carried 10 Iridium Next communication satellites to the low-Earth orbit. This is the second time the SpaceX launched Iridium Next satellites to space, with the first 10 satellites delivered into the orbit during the January launch earlier this year. Earlier this month, on the 3rd of June, was the first time that a refurbished Dragon capsule was launched from the Kennedy Space Center to the International Space Station during a resupply mission. The spacecraft delivered more than 2,700 kilograms to the International Space Station, including a 372-kilogram Neutron Star Interior Composition Explorer, also known as NISA. This experimental payload was installed outside the space station and will be used to study the structure of neutron stars through the precise timing of their X-ray radiation. The experiment is expected to start in the second week of July and run for 18 months. This particular Dragon spacecraft also carried an unexpected payload. Not announced until a few days after the launch, the capsule carried a Chinese science payload to the ISS. The experiment will run for 30 days and will study the effects of radiation on the human DNA. This is an unprecedented event as the cooperation in space between the United States and China has been very limited until now. The US government went as far as explicitly banning NASA from any cooperation with Chinese officials in 2011, due to increasing security concerns mainly focused around industrial espionage. It is important to note at this point that even though the experiment was paid for by the Chinese Research Institute. The payload preparation and operations are being conducted by the American company Nanorax. The company was tasked with ensuring that the experiment will in no way communicate with the systems on board the ISS 
and that no data will be exchanged between the payload and station's computers. Seen as a small gesture, this mission may eventually pave a way to new era of cooperation between two ambitious space agencies, one which struggles to return to its former glory, and another one that is determined to catch the rest of the world in the next decade or two. June was a great month for exoplanet hunters as there's been a bunch of new exoplanet candidates announced by the Kepler spacecraft science team, a bunch of 219 to be precise, bringing the total number of candidates to 4,034. We need to stress out that these are still just candidates that will have to be verified and confirmed using independent methods. Ten of these are especially interesting as they are expected to be near Earth size and be placed in the host star's habitable zones. This is a significant discovery, as so far only 30 Earth-like planets with sizes not exceeding twice the size of the Earth and found in the habitable zones have been confirmed. If these 10 new candidates are successfully verified, they should provide scientists with great opportunities for studying the development of Earth-like planets and allow them to focus on searching for conditions that support life. This release is also the final one that makes use of the data gathered during the primary mission of the Kepler spacecraft, when it was pointing towards the Cygnus constellation. On the other end of the habitability spectrum is KELT-9b. Its host star has a temperature of around 10,000 Kelvin and a spectral type between A and B, putting it amongst the slightly warmer stars in the universe. KELT-9b follows an extremely close orbit around its host star, with a period of only one and a half days. For comparison, the period of the Mercury is just shy of 88 days. The star's temperature and its close proximity to the planet mean that KELT-9b has a surface temperature of about 4,600 kelvins, making it the hottest extrasolar planet discovered to date. This is only 1,000 kelvin less than the temperature of the Sun's surface, and actually more than some of the other stars' surface temperatures. For example, stars with decay spectral type can have temperatures in the range of 3,500-4,000 to around 5,000 kelvins which means that the KELT-9b can have surface temperatures exceeding those of some of the known stars, which means that this is definitely not the place to search for extraterrestrial life. Whether you support it or not, the general theory of relativity still has a strong and stable position within the scientific community. Now even more than ever, as astronomers successfully repeated the 1919 solar eclipse experiment, this time using a distant white dwarf instead of our own sun, for the very first time in the history. Stein 2051b is a less bright but heavier member of a binary system, located at a distance of about 18 light years from the Earth. Being a white dwarf, it is expected to have a mass of around 0.67 solar masses, if stellar evolution theories are correct. However, first observation placed the mass of this object in the region of half of the mass of the Sun, which would, we quote the paper here, give the system a total age uncomfortably close to the edge of the universe. However, this first method was later found to be flawed, effectively invalidating the inferred old age of the system. The binary system has a significant proper motion, meaning its components move in front of the background stars at a relatively large rate. It is important from the gravitational lensing point of view as it increases the chance of the white dwarf passing directly in front of the more distant star. Hubble Space Telescope was then used to run eight observations of which four had to be discarded due to various areas and artefacts. It was however enough to find that the white dwarf indeed reflects the rays of the background stars and by the amount consistent with the general theory of relativity Similar to the 1919 experiment, the precise measurement of the deflection angle also allowed for the better estimation of the mass of the white dwarf, which was found to be 0.675 solar masses, in agreement with the existing theories. So, no stars older than the universe, and the GTR is correct, for now.
Thanks for that, Matt. Uh, now, Monique Kempson and Tom Scragg are interviewing Dr. Adam Amara about a holistic approach to cosmology. Hi, so I'm here today with Dr. Adam Amara from ETH in Zurich. Welcome to the Jodcast. Hi, it's very nice to be here. Um, glad to have you here, your first time, I believe. Yes. So we just had a great talk from you about your research in cosmology. Could you start off by telling our listeners um, a little bit about what you're interested in? Okay, so, so, so what I study is cosmology. So just in case people don't know, that's the study of the universe, how it got to where it is today and what it looks like. So on, on very large scales as we look out at the sky. Cosmology, of course, is a very old discipline. Wondering about our place in the universe is a very old discipline. Uh, I think in the 20th century it became a, a, a solid science and now we have made um, a lot of measurements and we know surprisingly an awful lot about the universe. We know how old it is, we know how big it is, we, we know how many galaxies we expect to see. And so I work generally in this area and the reason I like it is because when we have looked out at the universe, because we think we understand physics, we look at the lab, we think we understand physics, it turns out, though, when we did look out and make these very high-precision measurements, uh, we found a lot of surprises. We found that the universe was full of this weird stuff called dark matter. We've never seen that anywhere else. We found that you, the universe, which should have started in a, let's say, a great big fireball and just been slowing down, the universe is getting faster and faster and faster. It's just weird. It makes no sense. There's nowhere in physics that we see this thing. So there's a lot of mysteries in fundamental physics and our fundamental understanding of nature that have come up in cosmology. So I like to study these things. And it turns out to do that, you need to build big experiments, which is also very exciting. And you work with uh, smart people from all over the world. And you've got to try really hard to measure very small features. And hopefully, if we try hard enough, we might find something new. Ah, okay. So one of the things I liked in your talk was you were talking about how in cosmology in the future, you almost need like a, you didn't use this word, but you almost need like a holistic approach in that you can't just look at, take individual probes, whether it's the cosmic microwave background, so the light from the really early universe or weak lensing, you can't just take them individually, do your analysis and then compare them. You need to look at them right at the early stages. So what yeah. kind of brought you around to that idea and what have you been doing with it? Well, first of all, I, I like, you know, the, <laughs> the original title of my talk was holistic view of the cosmos oh, nice. <laughs> yeah no so i think i think that's right in the past we, we, we were making these discoveries by looking one place at a time you know you look mm -hmm. over here wow something weird came up you look over here something else interesting came up now what we've done in the last 10 or 20 years is i think we've pushed that to the limit and we sort of at some level understand how the pieces fit together and and with anything the more you learn if you want to push it now you have to uh, does the evidence from this part work together with the evidence from somewhere else. So, you know, if something, let's say the cosmic microwave wants something to be big, and but the supernova wants something to be low, well, it's that difference between them that can really give us clues as to what might be happening. And so, indeed, I think the future of cosmology is to become kind of all-rounders and take this holistic view. And we, what's nice in cosmology is that the physics is reasonably straightforward and we can predict all the things that we should see in one shot. And so let's see in one go that all the things fit. You know, we'll make a prediction and let's see that everything fits together in one go. And it's important because, for instance, a lot of the contamination, so, you know, any measurement, you, you're contaminated by something they have to deal with. And a lot of them have the same stuff. To get to the universe, you have to go through our galaxy. And it's the same galaxy. So if somebody does a correction for our galaxy, takes away the effect of the light from our galaxy, and somebody else over here does a different correction, well, now we're going to get problems. So we should make sure that we do our corrections in consistent ways. So indeed, I think for the measurements themselves, for the predictions, and then all of the nitty-gritty measurement stuff, we need to do that in one shot. No, I think that makes sense. And I can definitely see that when you're trying to compare different works and they've used different ways to, you know, remove the galaxy or correct for the galaxy, it becomes a nightmare to compare the two. Right. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So one thing you said that I'm going to jump on is that you said that, you know, the physics is relatively simple. And I w wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that, because I think to your average person who's not a cosmologist, you kind of think, well, how could it be simple? So what, what do you mean? All right. That? OK, so, so uh, it's simple in that first you've got to You've got to learn general relativity. <laughs> so, so once you've got general relativity under your belt and you're comfortable with that and, and various other mathematical tricks like perturbation theory, once you've got these things mm -hmm. under your belt, 
It turns out that you can describe the universe in a very small number of numbers. So the equations that flow from general relativity, which is our description of gravity mm. that Einstein came up with 100 years ago, the equations that flow from that, if you just say, I'm going to assume that this thing that we've tested on Earth and around the Earth, uh, I'm going to assume that this works for the whole universe mm -hmm. and I'm just going to see what happens. If you go ahead and do that, it turns out that's what things look like mm. generally. And there's not a lot of wiggle room if you decide that GR is correct and you work with perturbations. So that's what I mean. It's straightforward if you can do the math. Yep. But there's not a lot of wiggle room. <laughs> no, that, I think that makes sense. So you um, are more involved on kind of the lensing side of cosmology, is that right? Mm -hmm. So what yep. kind of work are you involved with there? So, so again, lensing was one of these things that was basically discovered, invented uh, because of Einstein's gravity. So until then, we had Newton, right? Newton had two masses can pull each other and that they have gravity between them. And we've all done that in school, G, M over R squared. But with Einstein, he said, OK, we have to replace that. And what, what happens is mass bends space time and then things move around in a bent space time. And since light is a thing, that also has to go around a space time. And it was it was a it was a very clear prediction that could have easily been wrong. And, you know, he made a number of predictions. So this one about light bending around mass was something that was tested in Eddington's eclipse experiment pretty much straight away. You look at where stars are behind uh, the sun during an eclipse and you look at where stars are when the sun's not there. And if Einstein's relativity is right, uh, stars should move mm -hmm. because of the mass of the sun. And if Newton is right, the stars should stay exactly where they are. And you know what? The stars moved in exactly the way predicted by general relativity. That was like the first success of lensing. So this was about, what, what was it, 1919, roughly? Something that this like that. It was around 100 years ago. Yeah. And then, and then, and then, so, so the, the sun is very close to us and it's very massive. So then people thought about, okay, well, what's the next star? Maybe the, mm. they decided that it wasn't feasible for that thing to lens. There's a long gap. Nothing happened in lensing, like, for, for close to 40 years. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, nothing happened. And then and then this eccentric, interesting astronomer, the Swiss astronomer, Zwicky, who is at Caltech, uh, wrote an interesting paper. He's like, instead of thinking about individual stars, you should think yeah. about collections of stars in a nebula, and maybe they'd be enough together to bend light. Okay, so that's interesting. So we're in, what, what is it, the 1940s? Still, between 1919, it took till 1979 to have wow. the next measurement. <laughs> Of lensing. But the weird thing is, uh, so, so what it meant is the telescopes got better, the detectors got better, everything got better, mm -hmm. our measurements got better. From that moment on, like, it accelerated, so now we can't stop measuring lensing. In fact, astronomers that don't care about lensing complain that all their stuff gets lensed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, it's, it's the weirdest thing. It happens to everything. Really. Right. So if it happens to everything, mm -hmm. I'm a big fan and I like to measure it. And the, what I like about it is, again... It comes directly from a very clean theory, general relativity. So mm -hmm. if you can figure out how much the light was bent, you know exactly how much mass there was. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter what the mass is, whether it's hydrogen, helium, or dark matter, or blue matter, pink matter, you know, invent any kind mm -hmm. of matter you want, it'll be the same. And that I like. Yeah, simple in that respect. <laughs> simple in that. Hard to measure, but now we know how to do it. Actually, so... that reminds me when you were introduced before the talk um it was mentioned that you discovered a proto planet yeah 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 how did you get from cosmology to a proto planet oh that was sort of a hobby yeah okay. um well what happens is again I, as i said lensing the physics is simple but the measurement is really hard and in particular the way that the telescope distorts the light itself can mimic the lensing effect so it's something that we call the point spread function so you want to handle that very well in mm -hmm. lensing. You want to understand how the telescope messes with the light. Okay, if you look at planets, uh, you have a star and you have a planet that goes around the star. It's a really simple system. Mm -hmm. You know, physics is really easy. <laughs> right. Really mm -hmm. hard to measure because the star and the planet are very close together. So mm -hmm. if you take a picture, all you see is the star distorted by the telescope in exactly the same way as in lensing. It has a point spread function. And then there's a tiny little planet that's obscure. So what happened is... Myself and a friend of mine in Zurich, his name is Sascha Kuntz, who works mm -hmm. on planets, were having coffee one day. And he told me about the algorithms they have for uh, detecting planets. Uh, because I'm so obsessed about correcting for telescopes, I thought I could do a better job. You know, scientists like to trash talk each other. He thought I couldn't. <laughs> and so I went and I wrote an algorithm. And then he challenged me. He gave me some data and I processed it. And this blob came out. The, wow. And the blob turned out to be a planet, HD 100546b. 
That's very cool. Yeah, a baby yeah. blanket. He, he, yeah, he gave me a bit of a hard time. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't have responded that well. But... Well, he told me, he told he, he, his, his words were, no way, no way, <laughs> nobody finds a planet on their first go. And so then I tried to get rid of it. I was like, oh, I must have made a mistake. Mm. I tried to get rid of it. It stayed. Uh, we published. We then and then then we went to the telescope, the VLT, mm-hmm. which is a very big telescope in Chile. It's a very exciting trip for me because mm. sometimes I'm more of a theorist. But we had two nights of observing, and and then in the first night I analysed the data as we went, and mm-hmm. indeed it was still there. It was wow. real. That's incredible. Yeah, and then you can do little tests to make sure it's moved in the right way, and mm. it all moved in the right way. So it was a real planet, and um, yeah, yeah. Wow. And that technique that, well, the algorithm that you used, is that something that is now used in that area of research? Yeah, so I made the thing public. So it's, it's, it's something called principal component analysis to direct imaging. And indeed, I think that's the current methods are all sort of based around that. So at the same time that I came up with this algorithm, another group did as well. So it was mm-hmm. kind of a, where the field was, was going at the mm-hmm. time. Yeah, well, yeah, that's pretty cool anyway. And that's I like those examples where, you know, you're actually facing a similar problem in two different fields, and so you manage to use them across both. That's very cool. So you're also, I believe, one of the founding members of Euclid, Mm -hmm. uh, which is an upcoming uh, wheat lensing survey. Yep. Could you tell me a little bit more about why you're interested in Euclid and what we should expect from it? Well, I think Euclid, well, there, there's a whole array, actually. There's um, LSST is a mm-hmm. big ground-based experiment. There's Euclid, uh, this European space-based project. And there's also WFIRST, this big, uh, also uh, NASA space-based project. So I think mm-hmm. together these three are going to be very exciting. Um, I started on, on Euclid in, I think it was back in 2005. Mm. And back then we called it Dune. Uh, it was a very small team. Most mm-hmm. of the work was done by two scientists, myself and Alex Refrigier, and we worked with a French space agency. You know, uh, the people that did the work, about five or six people, but it's, it was a really fun time because we were defining an entire space mission. So, you know, whatever needed to be done, you would do. If somebody needed to do um, figure out how to get the data from the satellite down, a telemetry, mm-hmm. um, well, you would go, you'd Google, you'd try and mm-hmm. learn this topic of telemetry and design a thing around that. So it was a very exciting time, and then the mission got big, so we decided to move it on to a European scale. So we submitted this proposal to um, ESA, and the team got bigger. I think 75 missions competed, and, and wow. we came in the top few, so the mm-hmm. top few got selected. The, the team grew. We were merged with another mission, and then we became Euclid. And then uh, we refined the design, and, and it's a very interesting process to go through because uh, I don't know, you, you've met a lot of scientists, they're, they're very good thinkers, uh, sort of creative thinkers. It's sometimes hard to pin them down on specifics. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Turns out space engineers only care about the specifics. Oh, okay. Like, they want to know precisely, okay, mm-hmm. in fact, they don't even want, you can't say the pixel should be 0.2 microns. They're like, no, 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 that, that's impossible. I want the range. It should be between what <laughs> and what. And so they're very precise people. Now, mm-hmm. that interface between the wish list that the scientists have and the precise thing that the space engineers know they can build, well, that's a very difficult interface to manage, and that's mostly where I sat. It involved a bit of diplomacy between the two, but it was a, it's a very interesting thing, and then finally we fleshed out the mission. It got funding, and I and it uh, should be due to launch 2020-something, 2020, 2020 middle. Yeah, so I think that's going to be a big breakthrough. That, mm. especially combined with the others, is going to be a big breakthrough for the next generation mm. of very high-quality measurements of the sky. Oh, that is really exciting. And I think you're right in that we are in that kind of golden point for cosmology. We're hopefully going to see you know, all these new surveys come in, which is going to right. be pretty exciting. Yeah, I think so. It's, it's, the CMB has already gone through this. Yeah. And so we're mm-hmm. about, I think, to do this with the low redshift universe. The, the universe between us and about two-thirds of the history of the universe, that mm-hmm. bit of the universe, we're about to go through, I think, a golden age. Mm-hmm. So what do you think are the main challenges facing your field at the moment? And so what do you see as being the big barriers you need to overcome before you're able to deal with that wealth of information? Well, I think it's just uh, uh, it's just handling the data. And mm-hmm. it's such a, uh, such a new regime of data volumes that I think one of the things we, uh, at least in my own personal opinion, one of the things we have to come to terms with is the old methods no longer apply. And we have to invent new ways of handling and representing and processing the data. The CMB had to do this. So the cosmic microwave background, uh, the nice thing about it is so it's a universe very far away, but it's a kind of like a, a 2D snapshot of the universe. So they invented lots of uh, ways of analyzing data in 2D, on a 2D sphere. What we have to do now is work in 3D, a full 3D, what we call ball geometry. 
And there are just things that we have to learn how to deal with. So I think it's more inventing new methods for processing the data. The data volumes are large. Checking that we're doing things cleanly. Uh, that's going to be, I think, the big challenge. But at least designing the instruments and the hardware, mm. I think we've overcome those. We, we, we know how You're to build these that. experiments. Yeah. Those are done. Mm -hmm. But what do we do when we actually have the data in hand? Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot more to be invented. Okay, well, that's, that's interesting to know. So anyway, uh, thank you for coming on the Drodcast. Uh, oh. Hopefully we'll have you on again in the future. Great, thank you for having me. Thanks for that, Monique and Tom. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. First up this week, we have Jake. What have you got for us? Okay, so my odd and end for this month is tentatively titled The Fate of Dawn, because I thought that was a gripping title. So what's been happening this month is it concerns the Dawn spacecraft which has been in orbit around the dwarf planet Ceres in our asteroid belt since early 2015. The original mission was slated to last for a year. It was then extended for a year in 2016. And that extension is now set to expire at the end of this week. So that's June the 30th. That's a bit like my PhD funding. <laughs> 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 Except that expires in March. <laughs> You're still here. And I'm still yeah. here. <laughs> so is Ceres going to still be here after next week? That's an open question. Well, the question now is, what do we do with the Dawn spacecraft? Because the craft itself isn't in great shape. It has four reaction wheels to keep it pointed at whatever the observers want it to look at. Three of those have failed over the course of the mission. Oh, no. <laughs> How long was the mission? It was launched in 2007. Three of the reaction wheels are failed, so what can it do then? Is it still useful? Yes, it's still useful and still doing good science, but in order to keep it pointed around the planet, to keep it stable, whatever you want to look at, the mission controllers have had to use the thrusters on board, fueled by hydrazine, to actually keep it stable and pointed. Oh, no. And there's only a limited supply of that on board. So what the controllers have at this point... They've got three basic options available to them. Number one is just to switch the spacecraft off if they don't get extra funding for it and place it into a quarantine orbit to take it away from Ceres. It's like when they move you out to the kind of dark office in the corner <laughs> to make room for the new students. They haven't done that to me yeah. yet. <laughs> I, re I really feel like you're going through some sort of PhD-related trauma at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> no, the PhD so is So in other words, a PhD. <laughs> yeah, <Yes>. exactly. <laughs> um, so they could turn it off. Yeah, and in this case, it is actually very important that Dawn is moved to the proverbial dark corner of the office. Right, because why? Because they want to send some other stuff there. Now, because the scientists and mission controllers are very keen that Ceres remains pristine and is not ah. contaminated by the Dawn spacecraft crashing into it. Ah, right. Okay, so they're, so they're not going to do what they've done with Cassini? No, um, they're not going to do a Cassini. Okay. Because so they'll, they'll just cut it loose and let it crash and burn somewhere else? They'll just let it drift off into the darkness of space this without hurting so anything. relevant. <laughs> Except that's not going to happen to me. I'm going to finish. <laughs> because it's hypothesised that Ceres was a water world in the past. Okay. And they found water vapour in the atmosphere. They found organic molecules. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So basically all the building blocks for life are right there. Wait, did Don, did Don actually find that stuff? Yes. Oh, cool. But I did not know this. Mm. this yeah. Is, that's really and cool. And so that you can so imagine cool. the worst nightmare of the mission controllers yeah. is that Dawn crashes into Ceres and you get unintentional panspermia. So, well, yeah, obviously they don't want it crashing onto the surface. Yeah, um, they're very keen yeah, to avoid that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what they'll probably do in the event of that happening, they'll use the last of the hydrazine they have on board to put it into this quarantine trajectory and just take it away nice and safely. Cool. Like what? Into the asteroid belt? I'm not sure. Probably not to crash into the asteroids. Just away. Away. Away <laughs> up, into yes, space. Up. Into the middle distance. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, that's so, a... so is, is that just one of the That's three just options, one then? of the options. Uh -huh. so the second one they've got on the table is to keep Dawn in orbit around Ceres and to keep doing science with it for as long as they can. If the mission gets extended again, as it were, into right, next year. Right. Right. So what can they actually do with the extension of the mission? Because you say that they're running out of fuel mm. and the reaction wheels have failed. So yeah. surely there's only a limited amount that money on Earth can do. Yeah, exactly. With the current supply of hydrazine that the craft has on board, they're looking at weeks at best. Okay, so would it be safe to say that option two is probably a no-go? Probably, maybe, I don't know. It depends on what the controllers and the analysts feel they can get out of that time around series. 
Okay, so if they felt like yeah. with just a few more weeks they could take some really useful data, mm. then that would be... So yeah, if they felt that extra time would be useful, then obviously that's an option on the table for them. And do they do they think that it would be useful? Is there anything in particular that they're still looking for? It's difficult to say. I personally haven't been following the Dawn mission that closely, so I'm probably not qualified to say about... Right. How much yeah. money do we think they'll need? Should we start a Jodcast kit Kickstarter for them? Or <laughs> <laughs> With all the funds that we have available yeah, at the Jodcast yeah. to donate to others. Yeah, although, actually, if, if any of our listeners would like to send us an SD card, we yes. would uh, very much appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> a little context for you. Our SD cards that we use in the recorder for this show both died this morning. I spent about half an hour surgically repairing one of them with some pliers and duct tape. But that's not the one we're using, is it? That, oh no, that is the, that one, is we're the one we're using. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. One, the other one we're using is dead. It, it is dead. It is, yeah. it is beyond... Yeah. It, has, it had a DNR out on it and... It's dead, Jim. Um, no, it's heads mm. over there. But hopefully this one is working. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hopefully everything's fine with this one. <laughs> if you're listening to us, then it is. Yeah, so... Option number three for the controllers is to actually take Dawn out of orbit around Ceres and send it off to do a flyby of another asteroid somewhere in the belt. Ah, an asteroid in particular or just any asteroid? I'm not sure if they have a specific one in mind at this point. There's lots of asteroids. Yeah, and there's (laughs) a lot of potential evolutionary history to be learned about there. But yeah, so uh, it'll be interesting to see what they end up doing. Yeah. Um, so if they go for that third option, they'll actually use their ion engines to get there. Okay. Uh, cool. so those are xenon fueled, and they've got plenty of that on board. All right. So they could actually send it to... So there's a fair bit of life left in yeah. the mission, potentially. Yeah. Potentially, yeah. yeah. But of course, it's still an open question as to which one of those that they'll go for. So why, why can't they use the ion engines to... To correct for the failed reaction um, wheels. I think those are just primarily designed for long range work, as in actually moving between bodies in the Sending solar system. Sending it away to another asteroid yeah. or something. Because like that. before the Dawn craft was at Ceres, it was in orbit around the second largest body in the asteroid belt, Vesta. So that was. So it's had a really long life, then. Yeah. Wow. It's been going for ten years. Yeah. Okay. 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 So yeah, and it's visited both Vesta and Ceres. In That's done really cool. It's done a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I like the idea that, you know, because um, usually, like, these missions seem so carefully planned and, you know, they plan out everything that's going to happen and yeah. it's getting exactly enough fuel away. I like the idea that it's kind of just up there and, like, they're, they're kind of like, all right, lads, what, where are we, where yeah. are we head off to next? <laughs> it's always uh, planned impeccably, you know. but once that plan runs out, yeah. that's so, the point where the improvisation comes in. I guess in. it depends on how good a proposal they write. Yeah. Because, uh, uh, I mean, look at Hubble. That's been going for 25 plus years yeah. now still upgrading it. Yeah, it's yeah. doing work that the original designers never envisaged it never doing. Never imagined. That's really cool. They That's still cool. have to send up a guy every few months with a squeegee to clean off his lens, <laughs> but it's um, yeah. there is a lot of stuff still floating about. Yeah. So, yeah. Fiona, you have something that sounds quite interesting, so please tell us more. Right. Well, so my out and end this month is about, as we know and sometimes discuss on here, space travel uh, is becoming more and more developed and space tourism is beginning to sound more and more uh, like a a possible reality and not just a science fiction plot. And obviously, before they send any tourists up into space or before they send too many tourists up into space, there's a whole bunch of challenges that they're going to have to consider. And there's a crowd in Germany who think that one of the most important challenges uh, is how are we going to give them fresh bread when they're up in space? Um, (laughs) Apparently that's one of the most pressing unanswered questions in the field of space tourism today. To be fair, bread is good. Bread is nice. Bread is is good. (laughs) I don't know. Like, if I was in space, if I was up in space on my holidays, I don't think I'd be sitting there going, lads, this is terrible. There's no bread. Oh my God. (laughs) One out of five on TripAdvisor uh, because they didn't have fresh bread. I don't think I would be thinking that to myself. But anyway, apparently other people would, uh, which is why the team have called themselves Bacon Space. Good self-explanatory name. And uh, they are currently trying to develop technologies that would allow them to safely bake bread in space. And not, not just safely bake bread in space, but bake bread that can be safely consumed in space because the thing with bread is it's got loads of crumbs crumbs are bad for spaceships bad for people uh, not not down here on earth they're quite innocuous but in space uh, they float around because because of the low gravity 
uh, they float around and they get in things like equipment and people's eyes and people's airways. <laughs> Blinded by bread. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what a terrible way to go. Uh, well, they found this out. So, so how they found this out was, um, well, it should have been obvious, really. But, um, <laughs> it seemingly wasn't to two astronauts aboard one of NASA's um, Gemini missions uh, in 1965. Uh, they smuggled a corned beef sandwich up into into space with them America <laughs> yeah uh, and they they arrived in space and they unpacked their corned beef sandwich and proceeded to eat it and then the crumbs got everywhere uh, and I don't know what they didn't nobody died uh, I'm not quite sure what happened but bread has since been completely banned in space I'm now com- I, I just have the scene from the Simpsons where Homer <laughs> is in space, yeah. in space just going along eating Pringles or whatever it is that he's smuggled up with him yeah yeah yeah, yeah no so it was it those... was it was exactly like that <laughs> exactly so those crumbs like are probably the most damaging crumbs in history the, yeah exactly it's hard to think of uh yeah, it's hard to think of what worse trouble crumbs could have mm. caused, really. Mm. Um, oh, crumbs. <laughs> <It's>, uh... <laughs> Except in space, it's more like, oh, crumbs! <laughs> anyway, so they're designing some very fancy dough that basically won't have any crumbs uh, that you can, that you'll be able to tear apart and eat. Because at the moment, they can have bread, but they can have tortillas, because tortillas don't do crumbs. Um, oh, they okay. kind of, um, you know, you sort of tear it and it gets yeah. it, but, but it doesn't actually form crumbs as such. Uh, so tortillas are allowed. Okay, um, that sounds sensible. So they're, they've got, like... They've got burritos, but not sandwiches. Yeah, I mean, uh, like, which, like, honestly, like, oh my god, just, you're up in space, just sit down and shut up and eat your burritos and be appreciative <laughs> for what you've got, in my book. But anyway, yeah. that's... Although um, if you've tried any of that, like, astronaut ice cream that you can get from... Like the the Jodrell Bank. I never have. I used center. to work in a science museum and yeah. we used to sell it, but I never it's I never disgusting. tried it. I'm not I, surprised. I, I just, yeah, just yeah. Astronaut food is we horrible, used to we so used I to don't sell blame it and... them for wanting bread to be honest. Yeah, no one no one ever used to buy it, and I, I don't blame them mm-hmm. because it just looked not appetizing in the least. So yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a fair point, and I guess it's it is kind of um, a springboard for like you're right. They will want palatable food up there. Maybe this is a start. So anyway, they're designing their, they've got like a whole team of food scientists working on the dough to try and get the dough. They presumably, they want it to be kind of quite sticky or, or something, I guess, to stop crumbs from forming. Uh, as Ben was saying to me, they probably use super gluten. The dough is, is one whole end of the development. And then the other thing that they have to work on is the oven. Uh, so they've got this, this aerospace company designing uh, these ovens for them. The ovens are being designed by a company that usually designs airplanes and rockets and things, which I think is pretty cool. They're, they're trying a few different methods of cooking, because obviously down here on Earth, an oven draws about 2,500 watts from the power supply and uh, gets quite hot. Uh, they can only draw about 250 watts from the ISS's power supply, because uh, they need the rest of it for other stuff, like oh, okay. life support and um, mm. things. <laughs> Surely bread is life support. <laughs> well, I thought that was the point. <laughs> <laughs> So something they're experimenting with is cooking the bread using a sort of vacuum. So if they have the bread in a sealed um, space and they lower the pressure, uh, because of physics, lowering the pressure will raise the temperature. Okay, PV, yeah. PV equals NRT. Ideal, ideal um, gas law. The gas is ideal. So yeah, the be. gas is ideal. Um, <laughs> and so they've tried this down here on Earth, and apparently um, that makes bread which is nice and fluffy. Because well, I mean, vacuum ovens. Because yeah, yeah. Because baking bread is hard. Bake it. I don't know if you guys have ever tried it. No, I've, a... I've just started baking my. Own. Yeah, it's yeah right. It's uh, how are you getting on with that? Um, it's quite good fun actually. But yeah, your forearms a... do. Like, it's a you, good you workout, isn't it? it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to, I used to try it, but I never really could get it to be nice and kind of like you know i wanted that kind of nice fluffy bread you, you, you've got to stand in the kitchen punching you do basically for, uh, like yeah and i'm quite short so it's actually hard for me to like get the uh, you know no I, I am literally yeah. double fiona's height yeah so, <laughs> so, so you must be doing about <laughs> twice as well as i did yeah, um, <laughs> um uh yeah no so i um have never really successfully baked bread so i'd be really i i'm really interested to see what ramifications this has for mm. bread making and consumption down here on earth like, will you be able to go into Harvey Norman in five years' time and order the, you know, space oven? <laughs> Just use a pressure cooker. Yeah. Do people do that? I don't know. It's also pretty cool that they're designing a bread which is going to be crumb-free. I would buy that because then I could make toast and eat it in bed. Then there wouldn't be all crumbs getting everywhere. 
that um, does sound pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm interested to see where this goes. And um, so they're sending it up. They're going to send it up to the ISS in 2018. They're hoping they'll be sending up the ovens and the bread, and 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 it's all going to be remotely controlled from the Earth. So the ISS crew won't have to be bothering with it because obviously they've got other important mm-hmm. things on their agenda, like looking at the ants and running on the treadmill things whatever else it is they do floating about (laughs) about. (laughs) Uh, so they won't have to interrupt their busy schedule of floating about and other important things um to look at the bread because the ovens will be completely controlled from the earth there'll be little cameras inside so they can check in the bread and see how it's doing maybe if it turns out well the iss crew might want to open the ovens and eat it i'm not sure Mm -hmm. if that will be allowed bread cam bread cam yeah yeah yeah. long distance (laughs) bread making yeah yeah yeah. very long distance Uh, yeah. yeah, 100 kilometers straight up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that is, that, that's quite far, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, it's not that far, really, when you think no, about it. No, space, yeah. space is closer space to is us in Manchester than London is. That's a worrying thought. Do you ever get afraid of falling upwards? No. No. Is that just me? <laughs> that's just you. <laughs> what, what, what you've invented there is flying. <laughs> it's, uh... <laughs> no, it's different than flying. It's different than flying. Is that flying? You come back down. Uh, that's the scary part of flying. Okay, um... so okay, so you're terrified that you might just jump. Just I'll just detach. Jump really well. Just yeah. that, like when I was a kid, when I went outside, I used to be scared because uh, I, I could see the moon and I thought the moon would just reach down and, and, and grab me with its arms. With its arms. <laughs> with okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's why I became an astronomer to keep an eye on it. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the moon is up to something. Let's move this along to Josh's Arden end. So, last week on June the nineteenth, uh, we had the final data dump from the Kepler mission. Um, so Kepler's been up since uh, two thousand and seven. Has had various iterations. Um, at one point, it had the same thing happen to it that Dawn did where a couple of its reaction wheels failed, and it's now kind of crawling along on, I think there's just one left. So this is the K2 mission. So we now have 4,034 planetary candidates, with 2,335 of them actually confirmed. So this is in an area of sky um, that is the size of your thumbnail when you hold up at arm's length. Give or take the size of a human thumbnail. It's pretty small. So that's what, a few square degrees? A few square degrees. So within this latest release, um, we found 219 new planets, 10 of which are about Earth-sized within habitable zone of their star, which is the region that's not too hot and not too cold for liquid water to exist on the surface, Right. which is of interest to astrobiologists because on Earth, wherever we find water, we find life. So that's always of interest because if you extend that, there could be life on them. But so they're pretty far away, though, right? They, they are pretty far away. So, um, for instance, Kepler-452b was announced not this time, but in June 2016. That is about Earth-sized, and it's basically slap-bang in the same place of its habitable zone as Earth is, and it's around a sun-like star. So for yeah. us, it's, it's incredibly interesting. How lovely. But it's 183 light-years away, Goodness. which is very long way um it would take us i did a calculation at the time that was basically if we were on voyager and we changed voyager's direction and traveled at the speed it's going at it would take us about 80 million years to get there so we would need bread um, yes <laughs> large quantities, a lot of bread very large quantities uh, yes. bread and, and many other things many, too. many other things so i mean i mean they're, they're actually visiting all of these planets is off the table for now but it's, I, I mean, for, for me, that this isn't the most interesting thing that's come out of this latest release. So when we catalogue and look at the size of different planets uh-huh. um, that we have discovered using Kepler, uh-huh. we find that there's, until this latest release, we have found that there's sort of been a big bunching of low mass planets, sort of slightly less than Earth, so sort of Mars-sized, mm-hmm. up to two or three times the mass of Earth. Right. And... We at this at that point we kind of just saw it as a homogeneous like distribution. There was no further structure within it. But mm. we've re- um, within this from this latest release and from follow up observations done by the Keck Observatory in Hawaii, we have found that actually we can split this group into two further planetary types. Huh. So there we have super Earths and we have mini Neptunes. So super Earths are Earth like. They're up to about seventy five percent larger than Earth. So they're rocky, probably have an atmosphere, okay. and for carbon-based life like ourselves that like to walk around yeah, on things, yeah. they're places you could be. Right. Um, Mini-Neptunes are 
exactly that, like Neptune. So they're gassy, they're kind of have... I mean, Neptune has diamond icebergs somewhere within it that are huge. Like the the it's made, it's made it's made up of um volatile well, gases, but then it also has ammonia and uh, water within the atmosphere. Oh does it? But there's there's no yeah. solid surface. Yeah, no. Um Except for the diamond bits. Except for the diamond bits, which are theorized, I think. No one has ever actually <laughs> gone and got mm. one. But they so there there might be a, a very small core in the centre, but mm-hmm. you don't mm-hmm. want to go and walk on that because no. it'd be too hot, too pressured and yes. just not a good place just to be. Just generally a bit crushy. And quite windy as yeah. well. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think the, the average wind speed on Neptune is some upwards of 200 miles an hour. Really interesting for um, planetary evolutionary purposes um, because it means that we can actually split what we thought was one planetary type into two. Yeah. And there seems to be like a, a sort of tipping point where mm-hmm. once mm-hmm. a planet reaches a certain mass, it stops being a a super earth and starts turning into something like neptune and i mean that could snowball and it could become an actual neptune sized planet yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah the yeah. i mean it's it's really interesting for our planetary formation theories absolutely um, i think like what's interesting about this stuff too is obviously all of these planets are too far away to ever visit yes uh, mm. or see you know like um but i feel like the more information we collect about this stuff the more data we have available the more we'll be statistically kind of able to make judgments about any planets that we observe in the future we can be like yeah i mean you know um yeah one of one of the major problems with kepler as mm -hmm. as a mission is that because it's only observing such a small part of sky exactly um but it's observing really really deep there's a lot of planets and a lot of discoveries that yeah. can't, you can't follow up from the ground because they're just too faint exactly yeah. whereas we're launching in 2018 hopefully not touch wood yeah there is no wood in the studio <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, we're launching the test mission um which is basically going to do what kevlar has done but only on stars that we can follow up yeah, yeah. right um, yeah exactly. so that will be a full sky survey yeah. which mm. i am frantically preparing for Yes. As part of my PhD study. Oh, seriously? I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I will be joining Jake in frantically preparing for it uh, in a, a month or two. That's a that's it's... a lot of that's <laughs> a lot of data. The sky is pretty big. Yeah. Um, yep. So that's yeah. that's what my frantic preparations are about. <laughs> We've got to be ready to handle this when it comes around. Cool. Because it's something like two hundred thousand stars. They're going to try and follow up with Tess. Is someone going to have to look at all that data individually, or is it just going to be? Are there like machine learning? Uh, this man has done something, I believe. That's what I'm working on. Ah, <laughs> uh, cool. So, yeah, if you're listening, I am behind the rise of the machines. <laughs> it is my fault. <laughs> Jake would now like to be referred to as Robot King. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So on that note, um, let's move on from the Robot King <laughs> to. <laughs> To the night sky king. Um, here is Ian Morrison to talk to us about some planets that we already knew existed. The night sky for July 2017. Well, at least I suppose the nights are getting slightly longer in July. So after dark, if you look fairly high in the northwest, you'll see the plough part of the constellation Ursa Major with its bright stars Merak and Dubhe the pointers leading you up to Polaris, the pole star, very close to the North Celestial Pole. If you follow the three stars, the handle of the plough, down towards the southwest, you'll come to the bright star Arcturus in the constellation of Bootes. Moving slightly over to the east from Bootes, there's a nice little circle of stars called Corona Borealis. In fact, not far from Sagittarius, seen from the Southern Hemisphere, is the equivalent That's Corona Australis. The Zona not particularly bright region in the sky, which contains the constellation of Hercules, we'll come back to later. And then you come to the bright star Vega in Lyra, one of the three stars that make up the summer triangle. Deneb is higher and over to the east, and below them is Altair in Aquila the Eagle, making up, as I said, the summer triangle. Down to the left of that triangle is a rather sweet little constellation called Delphinus the Dolphin. If, with binoculars on a dark night with no moon, you move about a third of the way between Altair and Vega, there's a region called the Cygnus Rift in the Milky Way, which runs through this region, which is rather darker than typical. And in there, you should be able to spot what is called Brockis Cluster, or the Coat Hanger, looking a little like 
like an upside-down coat hanger. So some quite nice parts of the sky to see, and I do think that region around Cygnus, Lyra and Aquila is one of the most beautiful parts of the northern sky. Rising far over in the east is the constellation of Pegasus, the winged horse, seen upside down from our part of the world. Well, what about the planets? Well, Jupiter, we'll start with, is now three months after opposition, but Jupiter still dominates the low southwestern sky after nightfall. It sets about 1am BST as July begins. As the month progresses, its brightness falls from minus 2 to minus 1.9 magnitudes, as the angular size falls a little from 37 to 34 arc seconds. It lies in Virgo, some 10.5 degrees to the west of Spica, and it's now moving eastwards again after its period of retrograde motion. It will actually pass Spica on September the 11th, on its journey towards the lower parts of the ecliptic. So next year, at transit, it will only reach an elevation of some 25 degrees, and in the two following years, just 18 degrees, before it begins to move back towards the more northerly parts of the ecliptic. Even so, with a small telescope and good seeing, one should be able to see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere, sometimes the great red spot, and up to four of the Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Now Saturn came into opposition on June the 11th, so will be at its highest elevation due south at around midnight BST, and by about 10pm BST at the end of July. So it will be visible throughout most of the short night. It shines initially at magnitude 0.1, falling to plus 0.2 during the month, has an angular size of about 18 arc seconds. With an angle of 26.7 degrees inclination to the line of sight, the rings are virtually as open as they ever can be. It is just sad that Saturn, now lying in the southern part of Ophiuchus, between Sagittarius and Scorpius, only reaches an elevation of about 17 degrees above the horizon when due south. So our view of this most beautiful planet is hindered by the atmosphere. If imaging Saturn, or Jupiter, Registax 6 has a tool to align the red, green and blue colour images to largely review, remove the atmospheric dispersion from the image. At somewhat over £100, one can purchase the ZWO Atmospheric Dispersion Corrector, which uses two contra-rotating prisms to carry out an even better correction, and that, of course, can also be used for visual observing. Mercury reaches greatest elongation east, some 27 degrees in angle from the Sun, on July the 30th. It can be seen low in the west-northwest, around 30 minutes after sunset. Binoculars may well be needed, but of course, please do not use them until after the sun has set. It fades slightly during the month from minus 1 to plus 0.4 magnitudes, whilst its angular size increases from 5.3 to 7.8 arc seconds. And no surface details will, of course, be seen. Well, Mars is hidden in the sun's glare all month, so cannot be observed. Finally, Venus. Well, it's visible in the east before dawn this month, rising around two and a half hours before sunrise, increasing to about three hours as the month progresses. Its magnitude dims slightly from minus 4.2 to minus 4 magnitudes, as its angular diameter shrinks from 18.2 to 14.6 arc seconds. However, at the same time, its illuminated phase increases from 63 to 74%, which explains why the magnitude does not drop too much. Even though it'll be moving back towards the sun, as the angle of the ecliptic to the horizon increases at this time of the year, its elevation before sunrise will actually continue to increase until August. Venus passes the Pleiades cluster on the 5th, the Hyades cluster on the 13th, 14th, and ends the month close to M35 in Germany. Well, finally, what about the highlights? Well, June is perhaps the best month to observe Saturn. It's now due south and highest in the sky in the late evening. It's lying very low in the southern part of Ophiuchus, some 16 degrees up and to the left of the orange star Antares in Scorpius. Held steady, binoculars should enable you to see Saturn's brightest moon, Titan, at magnitude 8.2. A small telescope will show the rings with magnifications of times 25 or more, and one of 6 to 8 inches, with a magnitude of about times 200, 
coupled, I must say, with a night of good seeing, and that's when the atmosphere is calm, will show Saturn and its beautiful ring system in its full glory. As Saturn rotates quickly with a day of just ten and a half hours, its equator bulges slightly, so it appears a little squashed. Like Jupiter, it does show belts, but their colours are muted in comparison. The thing that makes Saturn stand out is, of course, its ring system. The two outermost rings, A and B, are separated by a gap called Cassini's division, which should be visible in a telescope of four or more inches aperture if the seeing conditions are good. But sadly, as it's so low above the horizon, that may not be possible. Lying within the B ring, but far less bright and difficult to spot, is the C or crepe ring. Due to the orientation of Saturn's rotation axis of 27 degrees with respect to the plane of the solar system, the orientation of the rings, as seen by us, changes as it orbits the Sun, and twice each orbit they lie edge onto us and so can hardly be seen. This last happened in 2009. As I've said, they are now fully opened out, currently at about 26.5 degrees to the line of sight, and from this month on, the ring's orientation will begin to narrow until March 2025, when they will appear edge-on again. July is a good month to find the globular cluster M13 in Hercules and spot the double-double in Lyra. They're two very nice objects to spot with binoculars in the eastern sky well after dark this month. Two-thirds of the way up the right-hand side of the four stars that make up the keystone in the constellation of Hercules is M13, the best globular cluster visible in the northern sky. Just to the left of the bright star Vega in Lyra is the multiple star system Epsilon Lyrae, often called the double-double. With binoculars, a binary star is seen, but when observed with a telescope, on the night of good seeing, each of these stars is revealed to be a double star, hence the name. Well, around the summer solstice, so in early July, is a good time to spot noctilucent clouds. They're most commonly seen in the deep twilight towards the north from our latitude. They are the highest clouds in the atmosphere at heights of around 80 kilometres or 50 miles, normally too faint to be seen. They are visible when illuminated by sunlight from below the northern horizon, whilst the lower parts of the atmosphere are in shadow. So on a clear, dark night, as light is draining from the northwestern sky long after sunset, look towards the north and you might just spot them. Well, around midnight on July the 7th and 8th, you can see the waxing moon to the upper right of Saturn. On the 20th July, if it's clear before dawn, there's a nice grouping of Venus, the star Aldebaran, and the bright, thin, crescent moon. After sunset on the 25th of July, given a low western horizon and clear skies, there's a chance of spotting Mercury down to the lower right of a very thin crescent moon. Binoculars may well be needed, but please do not use them until after the sun has set. Finally, on July the 1st and the 15th, there are two good nights, if it's clear, to observe the Alpine Valley on the moon. Close to the terminator on those nights is the Apennine mountain chain that marks the edge of Mare Imbrium. Towards the upper end, you should see a cleft across them called the Alpine Valley. It is about seven miles wide and 79 miles long. As shown in the image I have on the night sky page, a thin rill runs along its length, which is quite a challenge to observe. If the moon is waxing, then over the next two nights, the dark crater Plato and the young crater Copernicus will come into view. This is a very interesting region of the moon. Well, I do hope you get some clear nights in July and I have a chance to look at our wonderful skies. Good hunting. Uh, thanks for that, Ian, um, and for our Antipodean listeners. Here's Claire Bretherton with the night sky where you are. Kia and welcome to the July Jodcast from Space Place at Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. Jupiter is still high in our evening skies this month, midway up the northwestern sky after sunset. Shining at magnitude minus 2.1 with its bright golden glow, Jupiter will be the first star-like object you'll see as the sky begins to darken. Just above is bluish spica, representing the ear of wheat held by Virgo. The waxing crescent moon will pass close to Jupiter on both the 1st and 29th of the month. Lower in the west, Mercury is making an appearance in the evening sky. At the start of the month, it sets just an hour after the sun, 
but by the end of July, when it reaches its greatest elongation from the Sun, it will remain in our skies until 8 p.m. On the 25th, Mercury will form a close group with Regulus and Leo and a thin crescent moon. Saturn is high in the northeast and is a great target for a telescope of any size, with its rings still at almost maximum tilt. Look out for Saturn's largest moon, Titan, looking like a star at around four times the ring diameter from the planet. Saturn continues to sit just below Antares in Scorpius, with the claws of the scorpion to the left and his tail curving around to the right. In New Zealand, we see this as the fishhook of Maui, Tematoa Maui. Below Scorpius is an upside-down teapot formed from the brightest stars in the constellation of Sagittarius. The bright centre of the Milky Way runs through Scorpius and Sagittarius, so there are many stunning objects to explore in this part of the sky. Lying along the tail of the Scorpion, close to the orange third magnitude star Zeta Scorpii, is NGC 6231, a bright cluster of stars which looks like a small comet. At magnitude 2.6, it is easily visible to the naked eye. Estimated to be only 3.2 million years old and nearly 6,000 light years away, NGC 6231 covers an area of the sky similar in size to the Pleiades but its stars are much more luminous. If the cluster was placed at the same distance as the Pleiades, then some of its stars would be amongst the brightest in the nighttime sky. With a good pair of binoculars from a dark site, NGC 6231 appears in an area of nebulosity and intermingled with open clusters Trumpler 24 and Colander 316 to form a lovely complex sometimes known as the Scorpius Lizard. Also nearby is NGC 2642. With binoculars, its three brightest stars stand out from a faint background glow. A little above, NGC 6193 is also visible to the naked eye at magnitude 5.2, and nearby NGC 6167 is worth a look in binoculars or a small telescope. Below, about halfway between the scorpion sting and the spout of the teapot, is M7. This is another open cluster of stars easily visible to the naked eye at magnitude 3.3 and a lovely sight through a good pair of binoculars. It contains about 80 stars brighter than 10th magnitude, and covers an area of 1.3 degrees diameter. Current estimates suggest a distance of 980 light-years, and an age of 220 million years old, still pretty young in astronomical terms. M7 has been known since ancient times, and was first recorded by Ptolemy in 130 AD, who described it as a nebula following the sting of Scorpius. Because of this, it is also sometimes referred to as the Ptolemy Cluster. Nearby and somewhat fainter, the Butterfly Cluster, or M6, is also a nice sight in binoculars. The stars will all appear to be around the same brightness, and the open-winged shape that gives the cluster its name should be easy to pick out. To the left of the teapot spout, and just about visible to the naked eye, is another lovely Messier object, the Lagoon Nebula, or M8. This is a huge cloud of interstellar gas and dust, where new stars are being formed. M8 is a great example of an H2 region, where UV radiation from hot young stars is ionising the leftover hydrogen gas and causing it to glow. These emission nebulae often appear pink in colour photographs, and the Lagoon Nebula is a good target for binoculars or a small telescope. Another good target is the Trifid Nebula, discovered by Charles Messier in 1764, and famed for the three-lobed appearance which earned it its name. It is an interesting object to observe, as it combines both an emission and reflection nebula, along with an open cluster of stars. There are also a number of globular clusters in this part of the sky. The brightest is M4, and this is also one of the easiest to find, lying just 1.3 degrees west of Antares. Appearing as a small fuzzy ball in binoculars or small telescopes, a slightly larger telescope will begin to pick out individual stars. Also in this region near the top of the teapot is M22, one of the first globular clusters ever discovered in 1665, and one of the closest at just 10,600 light-years. From its bright centre, the Milky Way stretches overhead through Crux, the Southern Cross, and onto Carina, Vela, and Puppis above the southwestern horizon. Together, these three constellations make up the great ship Argonavis, famous in Greek mythology as that used by Jason and the Argonauts in their quest for the Golden Fleece. Just to the left of the Milky Way is Carina's brightest star, Canopus, or Alpha Carinae.
the second brightest in the nighttime sky. Its Maori name is Atutahi or Autahi, which means to stand alone, because of its position just outside the band of our galaxy. In the other direction, the Milky Way drops down to the eastern horizon and the bright star Altair in the constellation of Aquila, the Eagle, which rises around 9pm at the start of the month. In the morning skies, our last visible planet, Brilliant Venus, rises after 4am. Venus is so bright that you can really only mistake it with the headlights of an aeroplane, and it provides a useful pointer to help find Matariki or the Pleiades as the cluster rises before dawn. Venus sits just above Matariki at the beginning of the month, but slowly moves down between Matariki and Taurus's brightest star Aldebaran as the month progresses, sitting just below Aldebaran on the morning of the 18th. Wishing you clear skies from the team here at Space Place at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, Claire. And now, on to the feedback. We haven't had any posts or recent emails. Uh, but we do have Facebook. Uh, we've got a message from Ben Harding who said, What a great June episode. Apart from the top class science about compact stars and a great odds and ends, I thought Ian Morrison gave us such a lot to look for in June, a time when some of us pack our telescopes away for a bit. Well, not anymore. Thanks. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. Thank you to Dr. Adam Amara for the interview. The editors were Tom Hillier, Tom Scragg and Parveen Mansour. And the producers were Benjamin Shaw and Naomi Estabrick. Until next time... Shut on! on.